Chapter Twenty Two of England, Canada, and the Great War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. England, Canada, and the Great War by Louis Georges Desjardins. Chapter Twenty Two: British Imperialism Naturally Pacifist. According to its nationalist opponents, British imperialism has always been of a conquering nature, like that of the Roman type and those of ancient history this opinion is formally contradicted by a long succession of undeniable historical facts undoubtedly the splendid structure of the british empire was not erected without armed support the creation without an army organization of a sovereign state comprising a fourth of the globe which component parts themselves of colossal proportions situated in all the continents separated by the immensity of the seas would have been more than marvellous I will not pretend that always and everywhere the expansion of British sovereignty has taken place according to the dictates of strict justice. Still, I do not hesitate to say that, on the whole, it has developed under conditions which were never the outcome of a mere conquering ambition. With much reason, English citizens are proud of the fact that their empire is the result of a natural growth. When the call to arms had to be made, it was oftener for defensive wars. The British Empire, outside the United Kingdom, comprise for the most important part canada australia the south african dominion and india it is easy to explain in a few lines under what general circumstances those immense regions were brought under the british flag i shall of course begin this short historical review by the acquisition of canada by england the great event of the discovery of the new world at the end of the fifteenth century tempted the western european nations to acquire vast colonies in the new continent spain france portugal holland were the first in the field if the craving for large colonies in the new hemisphere was of imperialist inspiration england does not appear to have been one of the first powers infested with the disease so dreaded by our nationalists she was rather late to catch it hollanders settled in new york before the british as all ought to know spain took hold of the whole of southern america france displayed her flag on the larger part of northern america commanding the St. Lawrence and Mississippi rivers, and the Great Lakes. Those immense regions, extending from the cold north to flowery Louisiana, were called New France. Later on, that part of North America bordering on the Atlantic, from Maine to Virginia, became British, and was subdivided into thirteen provinces, or separate colonies. For such a dominating imperialist, as some pretend she has ever been, it must be admitted that England was rather in a modest frame of mind with regard to her colonial enterprises. The British government itself was slow in moving towards the imperialist goal which was stirring up Spain and France to a much greater activity. The first British emigrants were Puritans looking for that religious liberty under a new shining sun which was denied to them by their native land in those days when fanaticism was unfortunately too much triumphant in many countries. As it was inevitable, the European colonies in America, all satellites of their metropolis, fell victims to the political rivalries of the nations who settled them. Not satisfied with fighting in Europe, those powers also decided to gratify the New World with a specimen of what they could do on the battlefields. The Seven Years' War did not originate in America, as it was the outcome of secular European international difficulties. If the European nations, in taking possession of America, were making a conquest, it was that of the white race over the yellow one of the New World. Spain and France, in raising their flags over four-fifths of the American continent, were surely strengthening imperialism. Will our nationalists accuse them of having unduly saved the new world from the secular Indian barbarism? More especially, Spanish imperialism in America was most despotic. 
by a very false political conception spain undertook a great settlement work in america with the sole object of bleeding her colonies to her only profit it failed disastrously as it deserved to it is because she persevered in her fatal error that in eighteen ninety eight she was forced out of cuba the last stone of her immense colonial edifice was cast away england shared spain's error but much less heavily like spain she reaped what she had sowed the thirteen british american colonies revolted and conquered their independence alone french canada remained loyal to england if the french canadians had sided with the british colonies to the south in the contest for their independence the canada of those days would certainly have been included in the american republic when england was forced by the fate of war to acknowledge the new sovereign nation her offspring then violently broke away from the parental home but has recently hastened to her defence at the hour of danger only remembering the first happy years of her childhood following the loyal advice of their spiritual leaders and of their most trusted civil chieftains the french canadians remained true to england refusing to desert her thus maintaining her sovereign rights over the northern half of the continent destined a century later to develop into the present dominion enjoying the free institutions of the mother country as previously stated the american revolution brought forever to an end british absolutism in the new continent henceforth liberty and autonomy were to be the two foundation stones of a new colonial policy which far from disrupting the empire as the autocratic one had done was to cement its union so strongly as to make possible the gigantic military effort she has displayed for more than the last four years the treaty of paris brought the seven years war to a close once more the peace of the world was temporarily restored by the treaty of paris canada was ceded to england our nationalists say if so how can they pretend that the extension of british sovereignty over the regions which have become the great autonomous dominion of canada was an undue manifestation of British conquering imperialism. An intelligent and impartial student of the early settlements of the two continents of America can only draw the conclusion that the New World has not been the theatre of the operations of British imperialism. Its first real attempt was tried, with much laudable success, in 1867 by the Federal Union of the Canadian Provinces, decreed by the sovereign legislative power of the Parliament of Great Britain, at our own request and in accordance with our own freely expressed wishes australia is the second autonomous colony of england in extent and importance it comprises nearly all the territory of the oceanic continent so called from the geographical position in the pacific ocean of the islands forming it new zealand is the second group of these islands it is another autonomous british colony called since nineteen o seven the dominion of new zealand those two dominions have a combined territorial area of more than three million square miles almost as large as the whole of europe with a population of six millions rapidly increasing their two largest cities sydney and melbourne each having a population of seven hundred thousand are great commercial centres if british imperialism has had anything to do with the bringing of australia and new zealand under british sovereignty it must be admitted by all fair-minded men that it has worked its way in the most pacific manner deservedly renowned british explorers cook vancouver and others discovered and took possession of the oceanic continent in the name of their sovereign welcomed by the aboriginal tribes they raised the british flag over the fair land of such a promising future in the latter end of the eighteenth century cook in seventeen seventy it has ever since been graciously waving by the sweet breeze of the pacific over one of the happiest peoples on earth enjoying the blessings of interior peace and all the advantages of the political liberties conferred upon these great colonies 
more than half a century ago. As a matter of fact, England has organized her Australasian possessions into free autonomous colonies at the very dawn of their political life, dating from the middle of the last century, when they began that splendid progressive advance developing more and more every year. Is it not evident, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that the settlement of the Australasian colonies by England, so satisfactory and so promising, has not been brought about by the illegitimate ambition of an unmeasured sovereign aggrandizement by a guilty sort of imperialism? The establishment of British sovereignty in the Indian country, immense in extent, wealth, and population, is one of the greatest events of the historical development of the British Empire. I shall not say that all that took place in the government of India deserves a blind approval. That British authority was much too long left in the control of a company was a misfortune. Under such a regime, abuses were sure to develop and increase. They did and were energetically denounced, more especially on that day when Sheridan rose to such an eloquence in the House of Lords that a motion of adjournment had to be carried to allow the peers to recover the free control of their minds before rendering judgment in the case brought before their tribunal impeaching Warren Hastings. The rule of the Indian Company was abolished, in 1858, by the Government of India Act. In 1876, the illustrious Disraeli, Lord Beaconsfield, took the statesmanlike decision of adding a new prestige to the British crown and to the sovereign wearing it. He had Parliament to adopt the Royal Titles Act, by which Her Majesty Queen Victoria was proclaimed Empress of India. Such, in due course, and without any trouble, was accomplished that great political evolution which substituted, for populations numbering more than three hundred millions of human beings, an imperial system in place of the deplorable government by a company. For the last sixty years the new regime has given peace, order, and prosperity to India. A French publicist wrote as follows, quote, After troubles of nine centuries' duration, India has recovered peace under the tutelage of England, the best colonizer of the peoples of Europe. England has rendered an evident service to India. She has freed her from the intestine wars tearing her since her historical origin. She has given her a police and an administrative system." Nations, like individuals, are not perfect. To judge equitably, impartially, the government by a metropolis of the regions under her sovereignty, one must not only be scandalized at her failings, but must take the broader view of her whole history in appreciating its final good and commendable results. So judging the government of India by England, every impartial mind must conclude that, on the whole, and more especially for the last sixty years, it has been beneficent. It promises to be still more so as a consequence of the admirable share India is taking in the present war. Egypt and the Sudan have a territorial area of 1,335,000 square miles, with a population of 15 million. I pride to be one of those who congratulate Great Britain to have freed the ancient and glorious Egyptian country from Turkish tyranny. A proclamation, dated the 18th of December, 1914, has finally placed Egypt under England's protectorate with the agreement of France. In the chapters respecting the Sudanese and South African wars, I have shown how satisfactory has been the rule of Great Britain in those African countries. It being ever true that the earth was providentially created for men to live in the legitimate enjoyment of the blessings of peace, multiplied by the fruits of their labours, the Egyptians and the Sudaneses have every reason to congratulate themselves for their liberation from the Turkish barbarous yoke, and for the protection they receive from one of the most civilising nations. I sincerely believe that this short review of the respective situation of five of the principal component parts of the British Empire is sufficient to form the honest conviction that if England has practised imperialism, 
she has done so for the real benefit of the peoples living under the aegis of her sovereignty the most favourable to colonial political liberty End of chapter twenty two